Indeed, you're no doubt familiar with this book of the Bible, the book of Jonah. This story, the infamous story of Jonah and the whale or the fish who swallows him whole. It's perhaps one of the most well-known stories of all time, whether you're talking about Bible or just stories in general. Ask anyone about Jonah, they'll likely finish the sentence with the fish or whale. It's sort of like this story. It's sort of like David and Goliath. Everyone knows about it. And I think there's something to that. Just the fact that everyone is familiar with this story. It actually, I think, it leads, to, uh, leads to its detriment. We're almost too familiar with the story of Jonah. That we border on presuming things about it. We often get ahead of the story, so to speak. And I think that's often the problem with some portions of the Bible. We are just so familiar with them that we assume too much about the stories too quickly. And, and indeed, we approach stories like Jonah as if we already know all there is to know about the story. After all, you've been, maybe you've heard this, this particular story since your days in Sunday school. And you might even be thinking, what else is there to learn about the story of Jonah and the fish Well, a lot actually. I would challenge you not to get ahead of the story. Don't go beyond where we are because I am uh, sure that you will perhaps be shown something that you haven't seen before. That's usually how it works with the word of God. A word that is living and that is alive. Jonah the prophet, you might know, is... One of the most intriguing figures in the history of Israel. And so it makes sense that this little book, this little book that bears his name, uh, is also one of the most unique prophetic books in all of the Bible as well. If you just examine it, there's nothing truly conventional about Jonah. There's nothing ordinary about this book. And no, I'm not even referring to the fish. (laughs) Just the way it's structured, just the way it's laid out, just what it records. Because what's fascinating about the book of Jonah is that it seems to be less interested in recording what the prophet actually said as much as it records the events of his life, what he actually did. At least a few weeks of it, that is. We know next to nothing about Jonah. The title character of the story is very much a mystery to us. We know his name. We know his dad's name. We know later on from the book of Second Kings, we know where he hails from. His hometown is a place called Gath Hefer, which, interestingly enough, was a village in the region of Galilee about three to four miles from a little known town called Nazareth. File that away. But that's really all we know. We know what we are told in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And that's about it for his biography. That's all we really know about this character. Who has been such a polarizing character in so many different ways. That's all we know about him. We barely even know what he preached In fact, what I think is most fascinating about this book of Jonah is that it it bears the name of a prophet of God. And yet, we only have recorded for us five Hebrew words or eight English words of his actual prophecy. If you go to chapter 3 and look at verse 4, we read, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. He called out, yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that's it. That's all of... Jonah's sermons that we have recorded for us. 
That's all we know about what he preached, which, as you can imagine, is very uncharacteristic when you compare it with the other books of prophecy from the rest of the Old Testament. They're filled with sermons. They're filled with prophecies. Ones that perhaps you might know are like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos. They are prophetic figures who are known for what they preach. They are known for their sermons. Jonah, however, is remembered much differently. He's remembered for mostly what he did, which is, perhaps you remember, run away from what God was calling him to do. This is what Jonah is known for. He's often referred to as the runaway prophet. He's the one who receives the call of God and then chooses to go in the opposite direction. This is what makes that scene of Jonah's calling so, so truly fascinating. Look again at verse 1 of this first chapter. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. In many ways, this is much like any other prophetic call of God. You could look at it and, and look at its sort of elements. It's, it's sort of formulaic. You could sort of examine it in light of any other call of God from any other prophet. Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Isaiah and all the rest. It's, it follows a similar pattern. A word of the Lord comes into the heart and mind of an unassuming but yet willing servant. And effectively turns the life of that servant upside down. As they are called into a life of being the very voice of Yahweh to Yahweh's people. That's sort of the prophetic call in a nutshell. But Jonah's call of God is different for two primary reasons. Number one, he's called to take this word of Yahweh, the word of the Lord, to a nation outside of Israel. As he says, go to Nineveh. That is a city that was in the heart of the nation of Assyria. Now this is not entirely unprecedented. This is not the first time this has happened. There's other examples of this occurring throughout the rest of of the Old Testament, namely, I can think of two, when in 1 Kings 17, when Elijah is miraculously able to provide for a widow of Zarephath, which is in the region of Phoenicia. Or you can think of 2 Kings chapter 5, when Elisha is able to heal miraculously and mercifully, heal the captain of Syria, Naaman, from his leprosy. Uh, Just other occasions where prophetic ministry is happening outside of the borders of God's people. But of course this wasn't the norm. This wasn't a thing that happened all the time. And nor was Jonah's reaction. Because not only does he receive this call to take this word outside of his own people group. But he chooses not to surrender to that call. As you perhaps are very familiar with. He does The exact opposite of what God was urging him and calling him to do. Again, verse 2, God speaks to him and says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out, preach against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. There's an intentional parallel you should notice in these two verses where the call of God comes to him to rise up and go. And Jonah decides to rise up and flee. 
He's doing exactly opposite. He's called to go to, no, to, go to Nineveh, a city which was roughly 600 miles northeast of likely where Jonah was in Samaria. He's called to go precisely there and begin his ministry as a prophet of the Lord. But instead of packing up and and following the Lord there and and going where God has told him, like we've seen happen so many different times up to this point in the books of the Old Testament, he packs up and heads for Joppa in the southwest. So instead of going north and east, he goes south and west and he heads to the coast Joppa was a very, very populated, very dense coastal city that was full of transport ships going in and going in and out all the time. There he secures passage to this city called Tarshish, which is mostly unknown, but many scholars believe was located in modern-day Spain. So you get this idea. He's doing exactly opposite of whatever God had told him to do. Called to go east, he goes west. Directed to go over land, he decides to go to the sea. Sent to a big city, he decides to buy a one-way ticket to the end of the world. (laughs) He's running away, getting as far away as possible from what God has commissioned him to do. What God has laid in his lab as his mission. He's getting as far away as he can, as it says there twice, from the presence of the Lord. This all, of course, is because of that location that he was called to go. God gives him this mission, go to Nineveh. And I want to pause there for a second, because while I I don't want to make excuses for Jonah, we should learn from his mistakes, and they are many, and we will learn from them. But I think we should pause for a moment and just consider the context of what's going on in Jonah's life, in Jonah's world. Because I think that will help us understand why perhaps Jonah decided to use the flight reflex to this call. Maybe we can sympathize with him just a little bit. According, if you actually just go there really quick to keep your place in Jonah. Go to 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings 14 is the only other place where Jonah's name occurs in the Old Testament. And it gives us a lot of insight into Jonah's world. What was happening in the global scene when Jonah was alive. According to 2 Kings 14, look at verse 25. He was a prophet, Jonah was, during the reign of one king named Jeroboam. This is obviously Jeroboam II. Look at verse, well actually look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, that's Jeroboam the second, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the first, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Lebohamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. So Jonah is prophesying to the king of Israel. Of course, this is during the heyday of the Israelite kings, the days in which they are wicked beyond all belief. They are filled with evil. 
They've turned away from the Lord for decades, for centuries. They have disregarded all of the words of God, and yet they're still, most notably, a prophet in their midst. And most notably here, there is this great resurgence of Israelites' favor here. You see, Jeroboam II, if you read history, uh, perhaps ancient history, he's regarded as one of the most prolific, one of the most prosperous kings to ever sit on the throne of Israel itself. All of the archaeological and historical findings that many have found, that have discovered, all suggest that he was perhaps one of the most successful kings Ever since the kingdom split, going all the way back to 1 Kings 12, when that great and horrible split happened between Judah and Israel, this Jeroboam II is one of the most prolific financially, socially, and politically equipped kings that they ever saw. Reigning for 41 years is just part of it. As it says there, his success is a direct result of Jonah's prophecy. As they regain all of this land, all of this prophet, all of this, all of this property, they are they are flourishing again. This nation of Israel, this kingdom, and notice, notice what happens. Verse twenty six: For the Lord, notice, saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Joash. You see, for as great as Jeroboam II might have been, as a king, as a political ruler, as a, as a, as a figure on the world scene, for as great as he was, what the historian says here is so fascinating, that all of Israel's success is not because of Jeroboam. Actually, All of the success that Israel is able to achieve and able to realize, it's clear where it comes from. It doesn't happen because of him. It happens in spite of him. They are living wickedly and evilly. And yet in God's mercy, in God's pity, he allows this season of flourishing to occur. This season of great resurgence, of great success, of great splendor. As all it was, was a gift from Yahweh himself. Reminding them of who their Lord was. Reminding them of who their God was. It wasn't any other God of the pagans. It wasn't any other God of their own making. It wasn't any other God they could, they could uh, sort of manipulate and mold according to their own whims and fancies. Their Lord was the Lord Almighty himself, Yahweh. And in his sovereign mercy, he allows through the prophet Jonah this season of flourishing to occur. The season of favor and fortune. You see, you, you see what's happening here. God is giving Israel something they did not deserve. He saw their affliction, as it says there, and he gave them a taste of how gracious he could be. And of course, Israel fails to learn this lesson, as you perhaps know, very shortly after this. Israel is overrun. They went deeper and deeper into ruin. They didn't grasp what God wanted them to grasp. That he was their God. The covenant God of their fathers. So all this flourishing really what it was. It was just a mask. 
All of the success that Israel was realizing in Jonah's day was nothing but a mask on a kingdom that was decaying, that was rotting, that was crumbling from the inside out. And yet, in the midst of that outward sort of resurgence, that time in which Israel seems, from all appearances, they seem to be growing again. They seem to be regaining their footing on the world scene. God commissions his minister, his prophet, to go to, of all places, go to Assyria. Go to Nineveh. Again, going back to Jonah, verse 2. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah and says, Arise, go to Nineveh. Now, the mere mention of that name likely stirred all kinds of negative thoughts in Jonah's mind, all kinds of harsh reactions. During the days of Jonah and Jeroboam II, situate yourself in that section of biblical history. Assyria, that nation, was very much on the rise, much like Israel. In fact, they had gone through sort of a downturn, but their king at this time was leading them into a resurgence themselves, such that Assyria was gaining a foothold on the world scene again. So much so that Assyria is eventually the nation that overrules and overruns Israel and Samaria itself later in a couple of chapters from right there. Nineveh, of course, was this very prominent city, a metropolis of ancient Assyria. This amazing city, one of the most amazing cities in all of the known world at that time. And in fact, many have reported that Nineveh's walls, it was surrounded by this wall, the whole citadel was. A wall that was roughly 100 feet high and wide enough in spots to allow for three horse-drawn chariots to fit side by side. It was a massive complex. So much so that in verse 3 of chapter 3, we get a a sense of its size. Where we're told in verse 3 of chapter 3 that Nineveh was an exceeding great city. Three days journey in breadth. In order to go from one end to the other, it took about three days of walking. That's how big this city was. Nineveh was a pristine example of Assyrian wealth and and power and dominance. It was a foreboding city on the horizon that struck fear in all who laid their eyes upon it. Mainly because Nineveh's splendor, all of that majesty, what was it built on? It was built on the worst forms of cruelty you could ever imagine. If you've ever done any studying on ancient history and you've read about the Assyrians, you perhaps know that they were masters of fear-based propaganda that they would use to intimidate their opponents. Reading some of the accounts of what they did and some of the accounts of what they made sure everyone knew about are horrifying to say the least. And this is part of the program for the Assyrians. They were masters at this. They were, they, not only were they among the cruelest of invaders to ever come up and attack some such city, that perhaps some of the worst that the world has ever seen, they were also made sure that everyone knew about it. They were always boasting about every victory that they had and about what they did to their victims. 
In fact, all the artifacts that archaeologists have recovered about Assyria, they often depict these horribly graphic and gory scenes of their enemies being tortured in all kinds of gruesome ways, ways which I can barely even mention this morning, which has led some to call them the the quote-unquote terrorists of the ancient world. One report details how the Assyrians would sometimes cut off both of their enemies' legs and, and one of their arms, leaving one arm of their victim so they could mockingly shake their hand as they were dying. That's the, how cruel they were. That's how heartless they were. And that's how uh, much fear they were looking to strike into their next opponents. All of which to say, Nineveh was perhaps one of the last places anyone with a brain would want to go to in those days. Being told to go to Nineveh was like being told to go to the very city that embodied the devil's program against the people of God. It was going to the very city that embodied evil. This was enemy territory at its worst. Going to Nineveh went against every single patriotic bone in Jonah's body. It was like being called to go to North Korea. No, I'm not going to do it. And maybe it's a little more understandable why he runs. Israel's on the rise. Who wants to go to Assyria? But what's fascinating about Jonah's story is that he did not resist this call of God to go to Nineveh out of fear of what they might do to him. Perhaps that played a part in it. Perhaps that was something which led him, which motivated him to just run in the opposite direction. But actually, we learn from his own mouth what moved him, what inspired him, what caused him to run away. He tells us in chapter number 4, verse 2, notice. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord! Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah tells us himself he resisted the call of God because he knew what might happen if he actually went there and preached the word that God gave him. He understood that the God-given message that he received from God himself to call out against Nineveh was not just a message of doom and gloom and disaster. It opened up the opportunity for these people who were the villains the terrorists of the ancient world, to have an opportunity to repent. He says, I knew that this was happened because I know what you're like, God. I know what you're like. I know your character. I know what you're made of. You're a God who is slow to anger. You would love to relent from disaster. And I knew that now that it's happened, see, I told you so. And this is why I didn't want to come here in the first place, he says. So you see, Jonah was more scared of God's grace than he was of the brutality of the Assyrians themselves. He was more scared about preaching this message that he was called to preach to these people. People who he thought didn't deserve it, didn't deserve to hear it. 
That's what scared him. That's what caused him to run. That's what caused him to try and find the the furthest place away possible so he could get away from this, this whole reality of people like the Assyrians being given the chance to repent. That's the story of Jonah in a nutshell. It's a story of a prophet running as far away as he can from the call of God to preach to a group of people that he, the prophet, judged to be unfit and unworthy and undeserving of receiving God's word of grace and truth. Jonah knew what kind of God he stood to represent, and that's what bothered him so much. He knew what kind of God Yahweh was. He describes him in verse number 2 of chapter 4 that we just read. It's the same description that you find of God himself giving himself all the way back in Exodus chapter 34 verse 6. Right after Mount Sinai. God describes himself as what? A God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah knows. He, He knows his Bible. He knows his God. And that was what bothered him most. He couldn't wrap his mind around the idea of a people group as heinous, as vile, as wicked, as wretched as the Assyrians, as being the recipients of divine mercy. How dare they get that? They don't deserve it. And yet through these events, what are we shown? Well, that the prophet... Of God himself, Jonah, is brought face to face with how horribly misunderstood he was about this grace in the first place. He missed the point entirely. And not just Jonah, actually, by preserving this for the people of God and preserving it for us, all of the people of Israel are made to learn the same lesson. That God's favor is not, was not meant to be confined just to God's people. And we might learn the same lesson. You see, I think the best way to understand this story, the story of Jonah, is to understand it in light of what happens way later. Actually, if you, you, you can turn there if you want to, but I think the way to understand the book of Jonah is to also understand what the Lord was trying to do when he tells that famous parable, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. You know the story. A man had two sons. A man who was perhaps very wealthy. He had had a younger son and an older son. And the younger son comes to him one day and says, Daddy, I want my inheritance and I want it now. It's basically a death wish for the dad. And while the dad could reprimand and punish that son any way he well chose, instead he relents and he gives this son, this younger rebellious prodigal son, his inheritance and he runs away. He goes off into the far country. And of course, you, you, know, you remember the story. He lives all kinds of riotous living. He lives it up. He parties. He has all kinds of... of a, he has a great time. He makes lots of friends. Friends who want to mooch off him. Mooch off his money. And then he loses it all. The younger son finds himself with nothing. So much so that he, a Jew, is now uh, trying and he's begging for a job to feed pigs, unclean animals. And he's feeding them. So much so that now he even finds himself looking at the trough of food that he's feeding the pigs. And he's begging for a little bit of their morsels. 
That's how low, that's how bad it was for the younger prodigal runaway son. And that's where you remember that famous scene. He comes to himself. He finally wakes up and realizes, and he realizes what? That the servants at my dad's house are living better than, 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 than me right now. I, I, I'm in such a low, horrible, destitute spot. So what does he decide to do? He makes up the speech. He decides, I'm going to go back. I'm just going to, I'm going to beg my father, not for a seat at the table, but... I just want to work on the property again. Dad, just let me, let me be a hired servant. Let me be one of your hired servants. I'll, I'll work my way back into your favor. And what happens? He comes back. I always picture that beloved, beautiful scene. He's on the horizon. He's off in the distance. And the dad sees him. The dad sees the prodigal son. And he runs out to him. He hikes up his robe. And he starts running. And he starts sprinting to the younger son. Who was lost and is now found. And he embraces him. And the younger son can't even get out his repentance speech. He can't even get out the idea. Dad I'm so sorry. And the dad knows. And the dad embraces him. Puts a new robe on the tattered rags uh, of that younger son. And he puts sandals on his feet. And he puts a ring on his finger. All of the signs, all of the emblems that what? You haven't missed a beat, boy. Because <laughs> you're my son. You have all the authority that I have because you are my son. And they go back in and they have this wonderful, joyful celebration. <laughs> They're eating They're celebrating the lost son is now found. The son that they perhaps thought was dead is now alive again. Everyone is rejoicing. Everyone except for the older brother, remember? He's the pity party. He's the one outside of the party and he's pouting. He's mad. He's mad at the idea that this younger brother... Who has just squandered everything. Squandered his inheritance on nothing. Is now being received like a son again. He, doesn't, he hasn't acted like a son at all. He's grumping. He's pouting. And the dad comes out of the party. He comes outside. And he tries to reason with him. And the older brother is so angry. He's so mad. Why? Because remember, he's, he's standing there. I haven't left you, dad. And you've never treated me like this. You've never given me this. And the dad says to him, remember, it is right that we celebrate this one who has been returned to us. Remember, he's urging the older brother to remember, I've been here all along and you've been here with me and everything that I have is yours. The point of the story is what? That older brother didn't realize how much grace he had been given all the time. The older brother thought he deserved it. The older brother thought that, you know, by his labors, by the fact that he didn't run away, but through his loyalty, through all of his efforts, through all of his toil, through all the times that he woke up early and went out and milked the cows and did all the things that he was supposed to do around the homestead. He did all of that and he thought that he was earning his dad's favor. So much so when those young son comes and gets what the older brother thinks that is rightfully his, he throws a hissy fit. And the dad says, I've given you everything out of pure mercy. 
You see, Jonah, who stands to represent Israel in this story, I think is a good stand-in for the grumpy older brother who pouts at his dad's incredible display of grace when the prodigal brother returns home. That's Jonah. And that's Israel. They're like this older brother who's so resentful of the idea of grace being shown to someone who doesn't deserve it. Have you seen what they did? Have you seen what they said? The prodigal son, probably rightly so, didn't deserve to be forgiven any more than the Assyrians did. And yet the story of Jonah, like the story of the prodigal son, serves to show us that ours, ours is a God like the father in Jesus' story. That same father, that father figure in that beautiful parable serves as a great picture of the God that we have. The God who has always been there. A God who runs, who runs out on the highway to embrace rebels, to embrace those who have forsaken him. And those he comes to wrap his arms around. We have a God whose heart is ready, is inclined to forgive. We have a God who is predestined disposed to show mercy yes even those to those who don't deserve it also known as everyone no one deserves mercy you see the point that I think God wanted to show to Jonah and to Israel is that they too were among the undeserving Yes, they were the covenant people of God. They were the people that God had chosen through whom they should have. And rightly enough, if they hadn't rebelled against Yahweh in the first place, they were chosen to be the channels of God's blessing to the nations. But they had turned their back on that a long time from then. So you see, God, I think, was intending to use the ministry and the prophecy of Jonah to the Assyrians. To what? To stoke the repentance of his own people. See how great and how lavish my grace is. It even falls on the people you don't think deserve it. I think we ought to be ready to learn the same lesson. None of us. None of us here in this room. Are worthy or entitled to the smallest scrap of God's favor or God's grace. And that's precisely the point. Everything that we have and enjoy and experience is nothing but a gift that is given to us. Out of the pure bounty, out of the pure grace of God. It's not deserved by us. It's not earned by us. We haven't worked our way into it. We haven't done one thing to merit the favor of God. And yet, how do we carry ourselves sometimes? We are so quick, are we not? To judge those who should and shouldn't be on the receiving end of our forgiveness, on the receiving end of our kindness, on the receiving end of our compassion. Man, no, they don't deserve it, so I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna even going to think about that. It reminds me of a quote from C.S. Lewis, who says... Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have someone to forgive. (laughs) I think that's very true. We love the idea of being forgiven. 
We love the idea of having our records wiped clean until we're staring in the face of someone who needs it. Who's asking it from us. But you see, as Jonah eventually learns, you and I, we are not the ultimate mediators of God's grace. We don't get to pick and choose who is and who isn't worthy, who is and isn't deserving of the message of forgiveness that we've been called to proclaim. We don't get to decide who is worthy of hearing it, who deserves to hear that message. The message of God's forgiveness through His Son, Jesus Christ, is not a message we are allowed to tinker with. It's not up for modification. It's not up for being doctored. It doesn't need the least of our input to make it better or make it more relevant or make it more resonant. We are not editors. We are heralds. We are ambassadors. That's what God has called you and I to be, much like Jonah. And perhaps we're not being called to go to some horribly uh, terrifying place to share the gospel, to share the good news of what God has done in us and through us. But the point remains, wherever God has placed you, wherever He has called you, that is where the message of grace needs to be heard and needs to be seen. Wherever God has put you, that's where He has called you to be the one through whom everyone around you knows that there is forgiveness waiting for them, whether you think they deserve it or not. Because the point is, we're all the least of the deserving We're all the prodigal brother. We're the ones who don't deserve an ounce of forgiveness or mercy or care or consideration. And God lavishes us in it anyways. Because that's the type of God he is. This is a lesson that Jonah eventually learns. He learns that he, he's not the mediator of God's grace. He's just its voice. Just a representative Just a man called to preach a message that wasn't his. So are we. We are called to preach a message that's not ours. It's not up for reinterpretation. It's not up to being changed or modified. It's a message that we are just called to live and to preach. And to preach as we live. My friends, this morning, wherever God has placed you, that is where grace is needed. So whether it's an annoying classmate, a frustrating coworker, a boss who will not get off your tail, wherever you have been called, that is where you are called to embody the grace of God, to preach to others through words and through actions. This very God who comes to reclaim the lost. This God who loves to embrace rebels. Loves to run down the pavement and embrace those who return to him. That's this type of God we have. This is the good news. It's the mercy of God that never stops running after rebels. It never stops running after you. (laughs) 
And so we can live as if it'll never stop running after those who we live with, those who we do life with. This is the God whose mercy never runs out. Let us pray.